Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Is our recession over before we even knew it began? So says Britain's favourite central banker, Andrew Bailey of the Bank of England. The problem is that Andrew also sets our interest rates, which means if he's wrong, it's going to cause quite a bit of trouble down the line. I'm joined today by John Butler, the Investment Director of South Bank Investment Research. He's got a lot of experience helping investors trying to navigate these sorts of turning points. And John, I gather that you're not a fan of Andrew Bailey's comments, but from multiple different angles. So take us through all of the different ways in which Andrew Bailey might be wrong again. Well, first of all, the entire premise uh, of of his statement is questionable. That is... Has the UK even been in recession? I mean, and that depends, of course, on how you define recession. But if you take a look at the data, I mean, the UK has been not really growing at all over the past six months or so. And yes, there have been a couple months of negative, slightly negative GDP growth. But really, that's economic noise. Uh, no serious economist would define a recession as something along those lines. I mean, they would say, yes, the economy appears to be stagnating. But to brand that a recession is really a rhetorical leap with the data, you know, spinning it for whatever reason. And so that's probably the best way to try and understand what he's getting at here. It is spin. Perhaps he's trying to communicate to the financial markets that even though inflation has come down somewhat over the past year, growth is not weak enough, and indeed, if anything, might be recovering from this recession, as he chooses to call it. So perhaps markets shouldn't expect interest rate cuts anytime soon. So what's his incentive to be doing that? Why would he be communicating to the market that actually things are fine and we're not going to have to cut interest rates as much as the financial markets are predicting uh, the Bank of England will have to? What's his um, What's his purpose behind that secret? Well, it may be a, a very honest one to the extent that he is concerned that the battle against inflation has not been won, that... You're seeing uh, so-called sticky inflation, where while some of the underlying inflation pressure has dissipated, other pressures haven't dissipated at all. Uh, For example, uh, wage growth. Uh, Workers are trying to catch up with a higher price level. That's entirely understandable. We all know strikes are still ongoing across multiple major UK industries. Um, They don't show signs of abating. And so... Yeah, I think Bailey is trying to make monetary policy in that context, which is also somewhat political. Let's face it, right? You know, when you start getting into you know, strikes by major unions and industries and whatnot, that becomes also a, a political uh, sort of force to deal with. And central bankers, uh, I mean, let's face it, they they choose because they do set monetary policy. They choose to walk this tightrope. It might normally be more of an economic tightrope, but you could argue in the current context with a general election not that far away, it's also become a political tightrope. Yeah, I think the context is crucial here. We've had for more than a year now financial markets, and not just in the UK, they've been predicting that central bankers will have to cut interest rates. The only question is when they would begin and how far they would have to cut. 
And it feels to me like what's going on here is central bankers are saying, well, hold on a minute. Inflation, especially very recently, has actually been going up in a lot of different places, or it's proven to be very sticky, as they're calling it now. And this means that central bankers are not going to be able to cut interest rates as much as financial markets have anticipated. And that would be very bad, especially for the stock market, because the stock market has been going up, up on the assumption that central bankers will be able to cut interest rates as inflation comes back down. So it's like expectations management, as they call it, for, for investors um, to try and tell them, hey, guys, we're not going to be able to bail you out as soon as you're currently expecting and to the extent that you're currently expecting. Um, what if financial markets now wake up to this fact and they realize interest rate cuts are not actually coming and perhaps actually interest rate hikes are coming? That's what some central bankers, especially in Australia and New Zealand, have been saying recently. They're warning the next turn in interest rates could be back up, not down. Look, you have an entire generation who have risen through the ranks of the city, Wall Street, or the global financial centers of the world, who have been conditioned to believe that central bankers tend to be far more growth sensitive than inflation sensitive. And so they tend to anticipate that central banks will do what they need to do to prevent recessions, to support growth, with the understanding that, okay, fine, you know, if that leads to a small inflation problem down the road, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it then. But the, the, the more immediate priority uh, is on the recession prevention side, or for that matter, preventing an outright financial crisis. And, and that conditioning may be part of the explanation for why the market has gone as far as it has already, uh, or in, again, not just in the UK, we're globalizing this now, uh, in anticipating interest rate cuts, and therefore that has helped to lift the stock market, especially, of course, those stocks where uh, that irrational exuberance, if you want to call it, uh, is most concentrated, which is which is U.S. big tech primarily. Okay. There are, however, historical examples where markets had also been conditioned this way, but then were suddenly sorely disappointed, and the stock markets got whacked hard. And I'll give you these two examples. You might recall the oil shocks of the 1970s. As we know, uh, the United States Federal Reserve famously saw the oil shocks as an external exogenous event that it couldn't do a whole lot about, and it didn't want them to lead to severe recessions. So the Federal Reserve nevertheless kept policy relatively loose to support employment and demand and all that. Yes, that eventually led to a sustained uh, inflation problem, and not just the oil price, right, but in wage growth and all kinds of stuff. Well, um, markets became conditioned to that during the 1970s. But at the end of the 70s, when Paul Volcker arrived at the Fed, he decided that that conditioning was a problem that had to be fixed. And the markets needed to be taught a lesson that the Fed wasn't going to play that accommodation game anymore. And he really let them have it. He let them have it so much that the U.S. Dow Jones Index price earnings ratio fell into the single digits by the time he was done teaching the markets a lesson. Now, think about that. That's a price earnings ratio of roughly half we've, what we've been accustomed to as kind of an average normal price earnings ratio for modern mature blue chip companies. Wow. Okay, um, he didn't mess around, as we know. 
Now, let's move forward to 1987. Uh, some people may be aware that in the uh, mid-1980s, it was decided by the powers that be around the world that the U.S. dollar had become too strong, and finance ministers and central bankers gathered the Plaza Hotel in New York City and decided they were going to find a way to weaken the dollar relative to the German mark, the Japanese yen, and, and other currencies generally. That process continued into 1987 when it was decided by the same cast of characters that the dollar had now weakened sufficiently and from this point forward, the dollar was going to remain roughly stable uh, versus other currencies. Well, that sounded great until the Bundesbank decided that Germany had an inflation problem and they were going to start raising interest rates to contain that inflation problem. However, at the same time, the U.S. did not have an inflation problem, and the Fed did not want to raise interest rates. But, under the Louvre Accord, the Fed was effectively obliged, and when they began to raise interest rates without the U.S. having an inflation problem visible, it started to spook the U.S. financial markets. They were worried the Fed was going to follow the Bundesbank. Unprecedented for the U.S. Federal Reserve to do that. And guess what happened in October 1987? The U.S. stock markets lost nearly a third of their value in a single day. That was the context. I'm not saying it was the cause of the biggest crash in U.S. stock market history. Okay, so there you go. The potential for damage here is vast. If we see a true reversal of central bank policies or simply market expectations for central bank policies, you can see a very dramatic reassessment uh, of, you know, of what people think is a stock should be worth uh, in that context. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. I want to elaborate a bit more on what people have become accustomed to that makes those two examples so powerful. Um, we're used to this cycle where we get a bit of an inflation problem and central banks hike interest rates and that causes some sort of crash or crisis somewhere. The housing bubble pops, the tech bubble pops, savings and loans crisis, so on and so forth. Uh, and then central banks just cut interest rates really fast uh, and this sort of helps the system recover. But every now and then, they prioritize inflation instead. Uh, and so they don't cut interest rates while things are cra crashing around them. <laughs> and that's what makes that situation so dangerous. Um, I suppose it's like a drug addict who's, you know, got their, their dealer on call and one day the dealer doesn't call up, uh, doesn't pick up the phone. And so that, you know, you get, you get a bit of a crisis. Um, to summarize then here, John, it feels like a good time to have some dry powder um, to be ready for what will, I suppose, be a, a buying opportunity because eventually central bankers do end up cutting interest rates a lot. It's just a question of how much pain and, and sort of carnage we need to suffer first in order to really hit inflation on the head and in a way that they call is sustainable. Um, would you agree with that? Is it is it time to, to lighten up on your investment holdings and to have some cash ready. Look, I mean, if you're able to time this and if you know what central bankers' pain threshold is, absolutely. 
The problem is most of us don't have, you know, the red telephone that we can pick up and speak to central bankers to know exactly what's going to happen next. And so if you don't have privileged access, my preferred strategy, rather than to time exactly what's going to happen and engage the pain threshold that's going to trigger some action reaction on the part of the central bank, is simply to structure a portfolio that is resilient to what is likely to be a correction at some point. It could be a large correction, but one that will be followed by an interest rate cut supported you know, recovery of some sort, right? And in my opinion, there is there are ways to do that. There are ways to do that. If you look at history, there are some sectors of the stock market that are more resilient to that sort of thing. That is, they suffer less in the drawdown, and yet they're able to, to participate in the recovery. They don't necessarily participate for the full length of the recovery, but they participate in the initial phase of the recovery, and then you can consider rotating back into other sectors. So there, there is a way to play this. And in fact, this is something uh, that I discuss at length um, in one of our services uh, called Wealth Advantage, where in fact we we do construct portfolios precisely for these sorts of, of eventualities. During your time in investment banks, you did have access to some of the central bankers making policies and, and some of the thought leaders behind it and also some of the big players in the markets. And so I want to ask you a question about how they perceive things. But this is almost for my own benefit, John. I really want to know the answer to this question. You mentioned that they're focused on wages, right? What they're thinking there is, well, wages are going up dangerously fast, and that's probably what's fueling inflation um, to be higher than expected and in some cases actually rising. And so they can't cut interest rates because wages are growing too much and fueling that inflation too much. They're focused on wages as the cause, right? But if I ask the person on the street how much their wages have gone up in the last two or three years relative to inflation, I think that they would say, well, actually... Wages have barely started catching up to prices yet, uh, and you know it, it's a bit um, it's a bit cruel to be saying to people, "Look, you're fueling inflation by getting wage hikes when prices have gone up dramatically more than those wages have gone up over the last two or three years." And central bankers are just cherry picking data by saying, "You know, over the last three months or six months, wages have been growing faster than prices." In a year's time, if we get a crash because central bankers increased interest rates too much or held them too high for too long, will we say the big mistake that they made was to focus on wages, um, just as the big mistake that they made in 2007 was to think that house prices couldn't go down, uh, they, you know, just as they made the big mistake about banks going bust. They all, there's always sort of a, a big particular reason why they got everything wrong. Is it going to be wages and the belief that wages are fueling inflation that leads them to over-tighten? this cycle well that that's a distinct possibility i mean andrew bailey of course already uh you know gotten hot water uh previously uh by suggesting that you know workers were wrong to demand higher wages notwithstanding higher inflation and and, and to say just for i mean to say that is 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 just so politically incorrect and you know, you, you, you can tell why this guy is a career bureaucrat, not a career politician. He wouldn't last five minutes in politics with, with that sort of rhetoric. Um, but the point he was getting at actually exposes the elephant in the room. Productivity. 
as long as productivity growth is high, what does it matter if wages are growing? The fact is, amidst productivity growth, higher wages are normal and healthy and are not inflationary. In other words, the problem is not wage growth. The problem is low productivity. And so the reason why central bankers are so obsessed with wages is because, in fact, there is this chronic malaise in economies to begin with that, to be honest, they couldn't do anything about if they wanted to. There's something fundamentally wrong with the economy is what, is, is, is what that white elephant is that nobody really wants to talk about because, sadly, it's not a matter for monetary policy at all. It has much more to do with taxation, regulation, and other things that basically just make an economy uh, less productive uh, over, over longer periods of time. So if it comes to that, if it comes to you know, a major stock market correction, recession, or whatever, um, and people you know, point the finger at the central bank, well, okay, yes, you could argue that perhaps holding interest rates higher for longer or raising them when you shouldn't have raised them or whatever was the proximate cause, the trigger. But we really should be concerned about the context. Chronically weak productivity growth, which implies that any wage gains at all are potentially inflationary. We should, however, try to find a way out of this productivity problem. That should be a priority. And the fact that nobody's really talking about it concerns me. Everyone seems to think that fiddling with interest rates somehow is well, every, all the medicine the economy needs. That's complete nonsense. And until we break out of that, you know, Procrustean mentality, that the only thing that matters is what we can manipulate, you know, with our marionette strings, it, it, until we get out of that, we're going to be stuck in this world you know, indefinitely. And it's like the Bank of England is really cornered by the nature of the um, of the question. Uh, don't worry, John, the Labour Party government, I'm sure, will fix the productivity issue just fine. Thanks very much for joining us in Different at Home. Thanks for watching. Well, thank you for watching. I hope you agree. It's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.